Kia ora koutou everyone and welcome to the weekly hoon, the week that was for the week's end where Peter Bell and I go around the news over the horizon and look to see what the big events were in the week. Uh, fantastic to see you uh, Peter um, and after a few false starts I think we're actually here now on air. Excellent, in the right thank room. you, good to see you too Bert. Yeah, yeah. and you can re redo that. That uh, intro you did before, you described me as being an old friend. That's right. Young whippersnapper. Thank that's, you very much. That's, that's right. Um, uh, it's, it, it really is great to have, have you here to talk about what's happening in the world of politics and economics and health and... And, and whatever uh, else takes our fancy within reason. Yeah, yeah. I we're, not gonna do, we're not going to do storms, hurricanes, earthquakes or plane crashes. No. Unless they're particularly interesting ones of each. That's right. Um, unless they, you know... That's my journalistic resolution. That's right. Unless it's into a meeting of the G20 or something. Uh, and um, no celebrities, uh, which, is, which is good. Unless they're celebrities doing appalling things with politicians, which is also entirely possible. Yeah, or making or speculating yeah. about the 10-year bond yield or something like yes, that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Go so, on ahead. So, the so what do we know? So, you're, you're speculating, Bernard. I think that Auckland is uh, with, with speculating with intent that the government is somehow determined to bring Auckland down to something approaching level two on Monday, Monday night, presumably. Or I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't suspect the cabinet will will put that kind of 24-hour gap that it comes from Tuesday night. I imagine they'll do it straight away, more or less. But it is pretty extraordinary that um, Jacinda Ardern has signalled that the Auckland border will be retained. That's right. Um, we've heard in the last couple of days uh, at the last press conference she was at, she really did give everyone a heads up. Hey, um, you're not going to be able to uh, fly out on Friday night, next Friday night, uh, for the two or three weeks of school holidays because Auckland's borders, which are currently at level four type restrictions, you actually need an exemption certificate from the Ministry yeah, of Health yeah. to leave it's very your own like leaving, leaving or entering Australia, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, Auckland is, in a way, it's an island. Um, it's the third island, or maybe it's the first, depending on... Yeah, I mean, it sort of does sum up how, how Aucklanders think of the rest of the country there, that unless you're flying overseas, there's nowhere, nowhere to, you know, worth going except Queenstown. Well, yeah, and now this is the issue for a lot of Aucklanders who are just desperate to go with the kids, um, get out of town, yeah. maybe go to Queenstown. And I'm sure there's a lot of businesses down in Queenstown who are hanging out for that mm. school holiday. Do, do you think there's any chance that it'll be different from this? I, mean, I, I, I was extraordinarily struck by the 45 cases yesterday, the 19 cases today. And again, the uh, reframing to some extent by Ashley, Ashley Bloomfield uh, and today the Director General of Health about... Um, it's not so bad in the total number of cases because we know where they've all come from, except that there is still a very significant or a significant number over the week or over the last 10 days of unexplained cases. Yeah, um, as we heard from uh, Grant Robertson today, the key number will be the mystery cases. And as we saw last night, um, there's still people rocking up to uh, emergency departments at hospitals saying, I've got this cough and I don't know what it is. That shouldn't be happening if we really had a contained outbreak. People, um, we all know that this uh, this disease is out amongst all sorts of communities mm. in South and West Auckland. 
And uh, when you've got 19 cases in one day, including at least a couple that are unlinked, we've still got nine overall unlinked cases. And we've had examples of um, people out of the blue just turning up at hospital. And yeah. also people who um, didn't know they had it turning up at hospital for other reasons, being tested and discovering that they were COVID positive, spreading the, yeah. the thing. Although I thought it was very interesting today in today's conference that the um, uh, the health spokesman made really, really critical point that you should still go to hospital, that the hospitals are coping with this well that it isn't something critically or problematic with Middlemore. That's kind of what it's there for. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's good. But, of course, um, the thing we're all afraid of is what's just happened in New South Wales and Victoria. Mm. And for me, one of the big pieces of news to come out this week is the Victorian explosion. So yesterday there were over 1,400 cases in Victoria. Mm. They zipped past New South Wales. And one of the reasons is the AFL Grand oh, Final. Yeah. yeah. Which was last week, and they had semi-finals before the week that the week before that. Remember, Victoria's been in lockdown pretty much for most of the last eighteen months. And uh, talking to my brother a few weeks ago, when it when they had to go down into lockdown again, he was he was saying that the people he was talking to around Melbourne were basically completely exhausted, and were now yes. openly flouting, ignoring the public health orders. And well, it's weird all. that those that those grand final. Um, parties and in effect became the anti-vax um, chicken box parties that you get in London and where people, you know, people, women and women, will, mothers will take their children and have little, little chicken pox parties so that they all get it. Um, doing that with um, COVID is a little more dangerous. I mean, how do you think it's playing politically? So I, I am really one worried about the, the sort of patience that people have, except that the polls all show that people are still endorsing this policy. So I was very perplexed to some extent by by uh, Judith Collins, the national leader's comments yesterday about pressure in Auckland and people already flouting the laws. And she was accused, in fact, of encouraging people to flout the restrictions. Yeah, that was a step probably too far. And, and, and um, Matthew Hooten had a crack at that in his column today, mm. saying that, um, you know, uh, it was your duty if you were double vaccinated to um, flout the laws, which I don't think is the case. But um, I think she senses, and I think she's right, that the mood is turning. And uh, particularly in Auckland, but the rest of the country, uh, those polls that we, we've seen the results from, are they really from two or three weeks ago? <laughs> and even then, the support was flagging. And when you look at the preferred prime minister rankings and Labour's own poll support, it has been softening over the last Yeah, absolutely. But, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people disagree with the current strategy. Or, or is this message that David Seymour and others have been put, putting, you know, the, the, the Don Key thing, that, oh, we need to learn to live with it, you know, without any sense of what the consequences of learning to live with it is? Is that? But do you think that message is sinking in? Yeah, or, what, what it's I sort think, of superficially appealing, of course. Yeah. What What I think has happened is that two or three weeks ago, we all started to understand that it wasn't possible to really squash this down to mm. naught and keep it at naught for a while, and then it started to dawn on us the implications of that of having an elimination strategy where we couldn't actually eliminate. That would mean lockdown forever. And because of what's happened in Australia, where that it's they've lost control of it, we now don't even have the prospect of a juicy trans-Tasman bubble to give us some freedom at some point. Yeah. And now but so we've got we've got this problem of what a friend of ours calls linear purgatory um, <laughs> going going on and on. But the prospect of not 
combating it effectively is also pretty harrowing. I mean, Susie Wiles put up a, a very good chart today, which maybe we could I could go and find and uh, and, and put on the um, the, the chat. Um, uh, comparing the, the current trend in New Zealand with the current trend in Victoria and the current trend in New South Wales. And it is not a pretty sight. We're in a remarkably good position right now, but it goes south very, very, very quickly and therefore put uncontrollable pressure on the on the health system, which, of course, is what we've been trying to avoid from the start. Yeah, and the the, the government um, can rightly say that they were trying to buy themselves time by having all, all these restrictions um, so that they could vaccinate. But the, the, the thing I think that's discouraging people this week, and I think is part of the reason for the turning of the mood, is that it's dawning on us that we got to 70% quite quickly. Uh, you know, we had that um, late start and then we then we took off. We went from first dose from basically 30% to 70% inside three or four weeks. But yep. now getting from 70% to 90% is going to be much, much harder, particularly for double dosing. And um, it's clear that uh, now that the misinformation that is out there, particularly amongst younger communities in South Auckland, is a real problem. And yep. um, we're not getting the vaccination rates that we expected. There's a lot of uh, vaccination um, stations that are empty. There's not the queues that there was there before. And of course, we really need the vaccination rates to be north of 90% to be sure that we're not going to get overwhelmed in outbreaks. But um, there's a, some uncomfortable um, realisations here um, from National and ACT that once everyone's had a chance, um, apart from the kids, of course, once everyone's had a chance to be vaccinated, then you can, then you can start blaming the victim. Yeah, interesting. And that's that's. I, I just put up in the, in the in the sticky messages, all the messages, Bernard. The um, the the chart that Susie sent around today is actually from the from the government's chief scientific advisor, and it is a pretty harrowing picture of where where, where New Zealand could go. So, in in a sense, we don't really have an alternative, do we, at the moment? No, and I think the government uh, knows that and is trying to tiptoe between the two of them, uh, trying to encourage people to keep going because there's a chance that we can keep mm. suppressing it. And then at the same time, giving us a, a hope that we'll get over that 90% threshold and then we can start opening up. But the longer yeah, it goes I on... That Ireland, Bernard, which is a very comparable country in many respects, has got to 90%. Um, so there may be. You know, do, do, you, do you think is, is the government or the, perhaps the health ministry more looking adequately at countries that have achieved this or... Is, is New Zealand so different because of, um, you know, various minority groups and so on that, that it is our own, you know, we have to do the, um, you know, vaccine McVax, McVax face buses? <laughs> yeah, we, we've got a lot of work to do, particularly in South Auckland and with young people and then also in the remote areas of Northland and the east coast of um, the North Island where um, some of the reporting from there is that there's... In, pretty intense anti-vax sentiment and yeah. a lot of um, disconnection from all of the official bodies, the DHBs, the hospitals, not a lot of access to GPs or information. And mm -hmm. you've got to remember in a lot of those places, um, they have mobile phone networks and their information is not coming from newspapers or whatever. It's all on Facebook and TikTok and Instagram. Mm -hmm. And we know from, that was the other thing that really struck me this week, was an extraordinary um, message I got about 9.30 on Monday night. So I'd been to the post-cabinet news conference, asked mm -hmm. Jacinda Ardern questions, and I thought my day was finished and I was about to 
try and have that, you know, end of night, lie down and watch some dumb TV. And then, bing, up comes the notification from Jacinda Ardern. I'm having a Facebook Live. So, you know, if you're following politics in New Zealand, you probably have to watch what the Prime Minister says. And uh, she was leaning back on her couch, um, having her regular Facebook Live, you know, very relaxed end of day let me tell you about my workday chat it's just brilliant um political communication strategy and it's she's got over over a million users and she started asking the question tell me about your vaccination stories and what she was expecting was lots of you know good clean um fun stories from you know my auntie mavis was reluctant and got her vaccine and she's just fine Instead, she got swamped by an anti-vax swarm. Mm. Not all. It's a very interesting phenomenon. We, we were talking about the certain fact your your partner Lynn Lynn Greveson's been very prominent on mm. this in, in pointing this out that the both the Ashley Ashley um, Bloomfield you know the one o'clock the one o'clock presses are getting hijacked deliberately and in an organised fashion by anti-vaxxers. And Toby Manhire from the spin-off wrote a very good piece about this this week where. It's, it's an extraordinary sort of content organized and it's an extraordinary contention between really the, the source of gospel that we've had in the last 18 months or so from Jacinda Ardern, who's whatever one thinks about her, her grasp of detail on this has been both extraordinary and to me sometimes alarming because I, I worry that she's going to trip over herself at some point. But, you know, the, this, this attempt to be super clear and give accurate information is then contested by an extraordinary flow of um, organised disinformation coming in from anti-vaxxers and others. I, I, I may have mentioned this last week, Bernard, but I was really shocked to have a, a, a perfectly sensible, well, I thought perfectly sensible person I know bring up the idea of um, uh, viral shedding. Uh, and this this person had said to somebody I know, I can't come to your house anymore because you've been vaccinated, and so you'll be shedding the virus, and I'm unvaccinated. So actually, you're the problem for me, not the not the vaccine. And I just could scarcely believe it. But, of course, this is doing the rounds, this idea of, of shedding. And if, if anybody there wants to know, mRNA cannot shed vaccine, cannot shed the virus. It has not got the virus in it. These amazing mRNA, uh, mRNA um, vaccines, which we're so blessed to have, really, uh, which have been developed in such an extraordinary fashion, cannot um, behave in that way. So somebody mentioned, Julian mentioned just on here, and I think it's worth mentioning, Bernard, whether... Whether we, I mean, of course, it doesn't wear any old journalistic hacks talking bollocks to each other, but and to uh, 47 lovely people there, but um, asked about whether the Pfizer only was a, was a good or a bad decision. And I, I'm personally still of the view that it was the right decision because at a time when you need everybody to take it, you do not have what uh, in Brazil they're calling the vaccine sommeliers, where people say, I'd prefer to have the uh, AstraZeneca or the Moderna. You know, I think we probably will have. A range of other things, or possibly, and I think, didn't we see that the New Zealand has bought the Moderna one for the possible use of, um, or booked some Moderna ones for the possible use of boosters? And I think they're talking about using um, AstraZeneca for people who may have some health complications, legitimate health complications with Pfizer. So, but I, I think the idea that we are not walking around to each other saying, "Do you want AstraZeneca or Pfizer?" is a good thing. Yeah, um, and it certainly, it certainly I, I helped. Know people distra- in Australia have chosen chosen to have Pfizer, and I know people in England have just chosen not to have AstraZeneca and wanted Pfizer. So, I, I think actually, as it's turned out, that that has been a very good call because you wouldn't want. I mean, if you've particularly to me, if you've got ethnic or societal groups that are hesitant already, you do not want them having another area of hesitance or choice. 
Yeah, choice can be a bad thing when you're trying to be clear about what um, you think is the right thing for everyone to do. And it turned out Pfizer has been one of the least complicated stories to tell. And for Australia, that AstraZeneca hiccup at the start was um, was did really set them back a few months. Uh, we obviously had a later start than everyone, but once we started, it's been a rocket ship until yeah, now. Yeah, I think that I, you know, I've been extreme. Well, I've been quite sceptical and critical of the government for for the slowness of the rollout, given the importance of it to, um, you know, to us to us ever ever getting out of lockdown or out of out of this critical period. On the other hand, it is absolutely true that they've used Delta very effectively. Sometimes. I would criticise also in a sort of project fear way, as they did with that Hendy data a week or so ago. But uh, I think it it has certainly uh, put the momentum behind behind the vaccine process. Um, and I wonder if they had started earlier, whether whether it would have been quite a slow take up. You know, it would have required a whole different PR and and public information gesture uh, approach from the one they finally took. Yeah, and it surprises me a little that we're still doing things like starting the the buses going out there mm. to find people um, in the deepest, uh, quietest places in the city and outside um, Auckland, and and also the communications campaigns. I suspect I'm not the target market, and the things that I'm looking at are not being watched by mm. the 22 year olds in Otara. But um, from talking to those people who are connected to those communities, there there is no official advertising campaigns out there. Some of the outreach stuff is very weak. Um, a lot of the um, uh, and and the and the main concern for me actually, and this is a question I asked the prime minister this week, uh, with the the swarm of anti-vax comments on her live streams, it is it occurred to me and. It seemed obvious to me that she would uh, report all of this to Facebook because, mm. in theory, Facebook is supposed to be cleaning up their service and trying to get rid of this sort of anti-vax misinformation. And this week we saw YouTube do exactly that. Uh, so Google has told YouTube, and YouTube's now uh, effectively cleansing the platform of uh, anti-vax videos which is great news because it's obviously one of the main sources of information for people who get it on video. And the NZ on ES survey from during the lockdowns last year yeah. showed that YouTube was one of the main sources of information for people in the um, younger uh, and less Pakia communities. So um, that's good news. But Facebook, no. I asked the Prime Minister, you know, why, didn't, why haven't you reported this to Facebook? And she said, well, no, I just prefer to engage. Uh, and um, I think that's going to be a bit of a theme over the next few weeks. Uh, we have restricted people's personal freedoms in all sorts of ways. We can't leave the country. We can't even leave Auckland. If you're in Auckland, you know, we have to wear masks all over the place. Um, yeah. It is yeah, a I major restriction. It's a, Mr. Anderson here, who I, I think I might know who it is, actually, um, asking about whether the mainstream media has failed to scare the shit out of New Zealanders by telling, telling them about 2,000 deaths a day in the US. I, I think people are scared. I don't. I think it's probably true. And Bernard, when, when I was first here, Bernard and I wrote a daily column about what was going on overseas. Um, I, I'm just not sure that telling people that 2,000 2, people a day in the United States uh, are dying is necessarily going to get them vaccinated here. Because um, I, you know, I, every time I come on here, I mention that there are still 36,000 cases a day uh, in the UK, not deaths, but there were 137 daily deaths in the UK yesterday. 
um, you know, I don't think we could put up with that kind of loss. Somebody also, Donna, I think mentioned, and um, uh, I'm not going to get into this whole area of side effects of vaccines, but, um, you know, in, in proportion, they're absolutely microscopic and the benefits are very, very clear. Uh, an epidemiologist I follow yesterday posted some data from the US which showed that the, the benefit of being, or the effective benefit of have, <coughs> having naturally acquired um, if, 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 uh, immunity from having had COVID was was less than half the uh, the gain from from having had the um, the vaccination. So I'm just I don't know we'll entertain too many of those no. discussions I mean, about whether um, you know the what the what the anti-vaccine agenda is. But but one on, on the again one of the modelers we talk to regularly is very very critical about the failure to address South Auckland early enough, apart from, of course, the early strategy of, um, of uh, vaccinating and, and, and testing people around the airport, partly because so many people in South Auckland work at the airport. I mean, what, what else could have been done? I mean, is, and is it the DHB's fault or is it a Wellington-centric Ministry of Health? Yeah, um, my understanding is that we could have cordoned off South Auckland um, effectively used a series of police checkpoints to keep everyone at home in South Auckland, uh, do a lot more um, outreach, door-to-door testing and vaccinations. That's only now just starting, the surveillance testing in certain Mm. suburbs. And um, there was a concern early on that the the key decision-makers weren't actually in Auckland. They were still in Wellington. And that that initial reaction wasn't aggressive enough. Now, the government did lock down the entire country for um, uh, three or four weeks. And, of course, Auckland is still now locked down and that border is still at level four levels. So that's pretty severe. But, and this is where, uh, this is a piece that I wrote this week in in which the the real learning from this week's uh, cases and getting some of the flavour of what's going on behind the scenes is that the the big day, the 45 day that we saw on, I think, Wednesday, mm. that was in large part because of the housing crisis. We've got... Yes, I was going to... Well, Bernard, you're, you're, you're stealing my segue for you, which I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to you know, throw this tennis ball up in the air and cast it over to you, because isn't there an interesting linkage between one of your favourite subjects, which is the unaffordability and the difficulty of housing, and the outbreak of this? Isn't it a really intersection that the, that the great pandemic reaches the great housing problem of New Zealand? Yeah. Discuss, but not for too long. Yes, right. So I essentially wrote that our housing catastrophe had just morphed into a public health crisis. And it's true. Mm. Many of the big numbers of new cases have come from households with multiple families. We have 10, 15 people in two, three bedroom houses. And where so many people are now homeless, they're having to be put up in motels and boarding houses. And at least a couple of the subclusters have come from boarding houses, which are very fluid places, uh, not necessarily, you know, um, compliant with all the um, all the rules. And uh, we know that um, there's been at least two or three uh, cases that have come out through the gangs. And uh, one more case uh, came out today in um, or yesterday in Northern Hauraki from the uh, the guy who was on remand and went for a bit of a ticky tour on his way home. Mm. So um, with the uh, virus out there in communities which are not necessarily compliant or connected to all of the health services, 
we're in a bit of trouble. And I think that the housing crisis is at least partly responsible for that. And I think that um, maybe I'm one of those people who thinks a bit like a carpenter that every problem is a nail and I use my hammer to hit mm -hmm. it. <laughs> and I think that we don't really have an economy. We have a housing market with bits tacked on. But in this case, our housing crisis has contributed to the ongoing rumbling outbreak in South Auckland and maybe the reason that we don't actually get get it under control because so many of those households are struggling financially, they're often working essential services, um, they're having to get out of the house, they're having to look after each other. Yeah, I, I think Bernard, just one, one thing is I do want to say because somebody talk about them being uncooperative, it, it is sometimes easy to sort of throw a finger of blame here and say why aren't they just getting tested? Why, you know, but some, these are people uh, have a, a deep and historic and abiding, well, in many cases, an abiding mistrust of government. They may be off the books of even their local GP. They may not be able to afford to go to their local GP, which is why they tend to go to, often tend to go to emergency rooms. Um, you know, these are issues of culture and poverty, not stupidity. Yeah, and, and certainly... Um... This is the inevitable result. In my of, opinion. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I agree. It's an inevitable result of a growing inequality in New Zealand. And for um, certain communities uh, who haven't um, benefited from the growth in house prices and have struggled to pay rents, understandably, they're not very happy about um, how the authorities have handled things. And certainly in the Pacifica community in South Auckland, the way that they were treated and the level of trust has dropped. Um, and we've seen reports that uh, people are reluctant to get tested, in part because mm. they've seen other families where mum or dad has tested positive and has been Im immediately taken out of the house and put into MIQ. Yep. And that's, um, that's a real problem for those big households. There are not necessarily the networks or the resilience of um, friends and neighbours and families who can take stuff, uh, take people to look after them. And, uh, you know, it's it's a tough situation for those um, those families. And I can see why, you know, often they're forming mega bubbles with two or three households just yeah. to get by. F Philip makes the point in our in our commentary there, um, Bernard, that, that, that it's quite possible that the Ministry, Ministry of Health has very little idea about how a part of New Zealand lives. And I'm afraid that based on some of our conversations with experts in this area, there's, there's some truth in that, particularly from Wellington, it's necessary. And, and I'm not sure this bodes tremendously well for the for the solidification of the DHBs. But what, what um, uh, one aspect of this is, I don't fully understand the, the uh, reluctance to do antigen testing and to do testing that is less invasive than the, than the um, um, cotton butt up the nose one, which you know looks pretty. I haven't had one actually, but it, I haven't needed to have one. But it looks pretty awful. Um, yeah, well, and of this, course it is. This... I'm sure. I'm sure they do it brilliantly. But there are other forms of testing. Why has New Zealand been so reluctant to do this? Is it, the Ministry of is Health it a gold standard thing. Yeah, the Ministry of Health has fought to retain control of the testing process and to keep the standard of testing at a very high level. They argue that when COVID-19 is not endemic in the community, you can mm. afford to only use the gold standard. And PCR. the gold standard is mm. the up the nose and then off to the to the lab and you get the result back in a day or two. The new antigen testing, which you can buy off the shelf in Britain and which a lot of businesses use and households use to do very fast tests. So up the nose, 
bit like a pregnancy test. Um, you check it, and then within five, ten minutes, you know whether you're positive or negative. The problem there is that there are all, there are often a lot of false negatives, i.e., mm. you really need to be your peak the peak um, infectiousness to be able to be tested. So people who are very early in the cycle or late in the cycle don't test positive. Uh, and um, it is useful, though, for those people who are very infectious. And Net. Yeah, and I, I see, I see but it's also employers are asking for this. And I just I just wonder whether we I, I totally agree about having had the gold standard, you know, last year when we were when we were doing this. But I have a feeling that we may need several other methods, uh, in, in, including the Dr. Wiley one from Yale. Yeah. And uh, the big news today, actually, on this front is that a bunch of big companies, including the warehouse in New Zealand, uh, Fletcher's have essentially gone rogue on the government, have mm -hmm. agreed to import their own version of antigen tests, effectively confronting the government and Medsafe to come up with an agreement to um, let these things out. Because everywhere else in the world, pretty much, they are using this these antigen fast Yeah, it's very interesting that Bernabeu business is doing it, because, I mean, you, you were very heavily involved in the early stage last year with Fife and others and the, and the, the um, uh, leading business people. Uh, to get that agreement from Jacinda Ardern to go hard and early, and business was not only right behind that, but felt it had motivated her to make that decision. What's what's happened to that relationship that may have existed for that period between business and and the government? It doesn't seem to be quite so robust now. No, it's it's um, there was an initial period. You're right, where there was this. Um, Let's do it for the nation. Let's get together. Let's support each other. We back what you're doing. And obviously it worked first time around. But since then, there has been a, a fraying of the relationship between, you know, the big end of town and the government. And also a lot of frustration, particularly with the ministries and the bureaucracies behind the scenes. I think they, they don't have too many problems with the, the prime minister and the finance minister, who really both have the confidence of just about everyone in big business. But there's an awful lot of frustration with how slow and cumbersome and risk-averse a lot of the ministries actually doing the heavy lifting behind the scenes are. The Ministry of Health, despite Ashley Bloomfield's rock star status at the 1pm mm -hmm. presser, actually, if you talk look around Wellington and the business communities in Auckland, the Ministry of Health is not popular. It is not seen as one of the best-performing ministries. And in effect, uh, the Ministry of Health is a, an advice ministry, a policy Yes, ministry. it's really interesting. It's almost like a think tank rather than a ministry. Yeah. And I think we saw that as it played out, things like the failure in the Christchurch DHB. And also you see it with that Andrew Little attempt to get mental, you know, his, his sort of somewhat why isn't this working uh, reaction to the failure of the mental health investment. And again, not, not particular criticism of the Labour government on that necessarily. It's not a, I'm not making a political point, but it is a it is a bureaucratic and uh, lever-pulling problem that, you know, when you pull the lever, there's nothing nothing at the other end. Yeah, and what you need is um, a bureaucracy that is um, a little bit fearless, uh, that is taking initiative, and which um, feels responsible and able to... Uh, be accountable. And one of the problems we've had in the last um, 10 years or so, and it's under both flavours of government, is that very senior members of the public service have become very risk averse because the moment they do something which embarrasses a minister, 
they get the blame. So the minister doesn't yeah. take the blame? I, I think that's true, although I wouldn't say that it's quite what was being said this week by, by various people that they've become politicised. I'm not sure that they have necessarily, and I think it's very, very important that we don't have a politicised um, public service in New Zealand. Yeah, it's not so much politicised in perhaps the, the American sense that you'd have, where people are actually appointed directly by politicians and it's very clear mm. you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. But actually in New Zealand, what, what uh, I think we've seen over the last 20 years is um, a defanging of the public service so that there's not that same streak, uh, speaking truth to power, free and frank advice, ability to stand up to a minister and say, actually, minister, your idea here is wrong and here's why, dot, dot, dot. Because yeah. what's happened in the past is that when a minister's been embarrassed, um, and this came in under Helen Clark and was adopted also by John Key, a no surprises policy came up. And what it meant was is that every public servant who's doing something that could be remotely controversial or embarrass a minister had to say up front, hey, this is coming, boss. Uh, you need to do this or not do this. And what it's meant is, is that many of those people in, the, in those senior positions are very risk averse. And under MMP, um, where essentially our policy settings have been frozen in time, yeah. Um, it's it's actually quite easy to stop new things from happening. So what you end up is with an essentially status quo based um, conservative um, bureaucracy and and not able to turn on a dime or take the initiative. And um, that is, I think, where a lot of that frustration comes from in business. I, I guess, Bernard, where I wonder sometimes, was, and it's particularly true of the 1pm sessions, which have been, to my mind, over the last 18 months, admirable sources of high-quality information. I, I did notice um, uh, Caroline McElnay this today, the Director of Public Health, made some remarks about being kind and winning the battle. And I, I just there are times when I wish that she and, and uh, Ashley Bloomfield would flick that part of the discussion, the kind of let's all do this together, over to the politicians, because these are much more political, political statements than they are public health statements, although, of course... You know they've been very, very effective uh, spokespeople for the for the best best things about um, about public public health. So somebody on that uh, on our feed, I'm just sorry I haven't scrolled down again. Um, asked about well, Paul asked about whether uh, we thought that it might be um, Labour's sensitivity to electorates in the, in South Auckland that had prevented South Auckland being locked down. I, I think the answer to that is no, and it's partly because. Um, Many of those people are essential workers. You know, the, the it, it, you know you only have to go into a supermarket or go to the airport and see who works in those in those jobs and how critical they are. And they may well have one, two, even three jobs. Um, and they're very critical. You know, they're critical groups of people. And I I think the idea of necessarily trying to lock down specific streets in Auckland is is not realistic. Although I wouldn't be surprised if in this. Um, uh, lockdown 2.5 that we're going to have, that there will be very specific concentration, as there is today. I noticed that the government is asking people, the health department is asking people to in uh, Henderson and Favona and very specific areas to get tested, um, whether, that, whether they have it or not. So I think you can see some very intense suburb by suburb and even street by street work, but not lockdown. Because I think we saw that in Melbourne as well, where some of those apartment blocks, uh, particularly with um, new immigrants in, in Melbourne, were locked down. And it was a very unsightly, very unpleasant, uh, targeted, uh, you know, understandable in a sense. But the the um, social impact of saying it is these people in this tower block that are the problem, which is how it would be portrayed, 
is is really socially very very difficult, particularly in New Zealand. Yeah. I, I don't think, I think we have to be really careful about the social isolation or social uh, finger pointing in this. That's right, and the, the pressure is, is really on. And when people are under pressure, often they revert to their um, they're bad angels, and uh, that's that's the worry here. Particularly in the rest of the country, there's a lot of frustration in the South Island in particular about how they've, they haven't had any cases in over a year, but they've been effectively in a sort of a lockdown. There's a question earlier about what happens to the rest of the country outside Auckland after next Monday, because the assumption is when Auckland goes from level three to level two, the rest of us can go down from level two to level one. Mm. I'm not so sure that will happen. I think the government will be forced, I think, to open up Auckland within the Auckland borders, but leave the very strict settings around the Auckland borders and also leave some quite restrictive public health measures in place in the rest of the country because they are aware it's possible that people are going to get out of Auckland and the longer those boundaries stay very tight, the more pressure there will be for people to break the rules and to get out. Got to remember that uh, Auckland has one of the highest um, boat ownership per capita rates in the world. And uh, you could see a whole bunch of people deciding, bugger it, I'm jumping on a boat to, I'm not suggesting that they should do that, but I can see how that might happen for some To where, Bernard? Sorry? To where? Kaua Island or Waiheke or something? Ah, what, what do you mean? Where are they going to jump on a boat to? Northland, Bay of Islands. I'd love to be oh, in the Bay of Islands right now. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I thought we should um, jump into monetary policy. I have no clever segue. But just, just before you keep going, your voice keeps breaking up. Are you using your phone as a mic, perhaps? What are you, or are you using no, your lovely thing? No, I am your lovely... using... And can you hear... That, so that's, it's breaking up somehow. It's breaking up a little bit. Just make, I think just make sure you're pointing a little bit further into it, as it were, pointing mm. more consistently towards it. Okay. It's a little bit like that thing when you use a phone sometimes, that it's... Ah. Uh, it goes away. Um, yeah, sure, monetary policy. So, Bernard, is the Reserve Bank of New Zealand going to have the courage to put up interest rates next week? Yes, yes or no? On Wednesday at 2 o'clock, it probably will put up interest rates, but um, I don't think it should because it looks like Auckland will still be in a type of lockdown come next Wednesday. The economy is still dealing with the shock of the last six or seven weeks, and uh, it's clear that... Um, it's clear that the rest of the world is still dealing with the shock of multiple waves of Delta. And uh, if you look at what's happened in international markets and economies in the last week, we've seen quite weak uh, industrial production figures out of China. There is uh, big problems with electricity shortages in China. And in Europe, they're having a huge spike. They should probably build a few more coal-fired plants, then, shouldn't they, to solve that problem? <laughs> well, this one is... a week, one a week, I think, has exactly. been, been coming online. Exactly, and this is part of the issue: is that China is cracking down on its emissions, and it's mm. been telling the Bitcoin miners to stop using power, but also telling the steel plants and the coal plants to stop producing quite so many emissions. Now that's fine. But all of those factories need electricity, and so there have been rolling power blackouts in China. That is affecting industrial production. And, of course, China's our largest trading partner. It's Australia's largest trading partner. And this is one of the untold stories of the last three or four weeks, is that the iron ore price has collapsed. And uh, that is going to be a concern for Australia. And I think um, that, plus the uh, explosion in cases in Victoria, remember they had 13 deaths, unfortunately, mm. today, um, means that uh, Australia is not going to be a source of economic strength for us. And with uh, China having troubles and 
it's clear that uh, Europe is going to take a while to get going and with extended issues with supply chains. I don't think you can start tightening monetary policy when we're still in quite a bit of stress. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a very interesting set of problems because it, it's, you know, COVID is one thing and affects everything else. But then, of course, we've got China and we've also got this problem in the United States with the government debt ceiling um, just being raised sort of momentarily until, until, until the beginning of December. But this contention within Congress about about you know agreeing a new spending bill and Janet Yellen, the uh, Federal Reserve chairman, chair, chairperson, was pretty strong today on what it would what damage it would do to the U.S. economy and therefore the global economy if the U.S. government both ran out of money and horror of horrors defaulted. Yeah, so October the 18th is going to be the key day, according to Janet Yellen. If there is not an agreement, uh, there is a risk that the U.S. Treasury market uh, will be. Uh, exploded by a debt default. And for those who aren't um, familiar with how the global debt markets and financial markets work, the US treasuries are like the the crust underneath everything. And if there's an earthquake that breaks up that crust, everything gets disrupted. And um, we've never had a debt default in America. And most people think it will trigger a global financial crisis. And the Republicans are playing fairly fast and loose and close they to really the edge. They really are, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a very provocative It's a very provocative stance for a supposed party of business. Yeah. And there's a great question, actually, from our audience, from Shane, asking about the trillion-dollar coin. Have you heard about mm. this, Peter? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, yeah, I have, I have sort of heard of it. It's the sort of thing you have on the radio on, the front, on, a, on a Sunday morning. It drives me batty because you then have to deflect it. Uh, and I think apart from... Uh, air crashes, um, hurricanes, and, uh, and and celebrities that we won't do. I'm not sure we should step into cryptocurrencies, but do do, no, no, do have no, a No, this is a much more official thing. This actually mm. came out under Obama when there were uh, debt ceiling debates in 2011 and 14, I think it was. This is the idea that instead of lifting the debt ceiling, the U.S. Treasury Secretary would mint one coin, like a titanium coin, something mm-hmm. fancy, and designate it as a one trillion dollar coin. So it's a bit like printing. Thus increasing the money. Thus, thus increasing the money supply by a trillion dollars. Yeah. Yes. And then you essentially, as the treasury, uh, you say, "Hey, I've got a trillion dollars now that I didn't have before, mm. and now I can use it to spend money." So essentially, you're saying to the Federal yeah, that's Reserve. Behold- Fiat currency. Would you like to explain what a fiat currency is, just briefly, Bernard, as, a, as our human glossary? Yeah. So, so uh, back in the old days, when a currency was backed by something hard, like a, a ounce of gold, um, uh, then you could literally, in theory, go to a bank and exchange your bits of paper for actual hard gold. But um, during the 1930s, and then again, really fully in the 1970s under Nixon, the world broke from the gold standard completely. And now we have money which uh, is not linked to anything hard. And that's why so many people are interested in Bitcoin. But it has value by fiat. Yes. Yes. So which is a Greek, a Latin, a Latin word meaning by, by statement, by us saying it's worth something, it is worth that. It is worth what we say. Yeah, no, it's essentially, it's a social contract. It's a social belief that this is worth something. And uh, so far, it's worked since the 1970s, the collapse of the Bretton Woods Agreement. Everyone thought that would end the world. But eventually, it settled down. And, you know, we don't have massive inflation, although 
obviously there's a bunch of people trading crypto who say that the recent inflation we've had is some sort of uh, permanent uh, state and and the eventual um, exposure of that the that the emperor has no clothes and that finally the fiat thing is going to collapse into a hard currency and the hard currency is going to be Bitcoin. But yeah. And Bernard, so just, just to clarify something, so one of the people at the very start of the question said, um, is Bernard an economist? Uh, and I think the answer to that is, did you do an economics degree? I mean, I know you're not literally an economist, but did you do an economics degree? Yes, I was trained in economics at Mass University. Agricultural well, economics. I, I, I won the economics prize at the sixth form of Penrose High School. So, uh, no, no, I'm not an economist, but but clearly Bernard actually does have a degree. Uh, and on your question earlier also about PR versus journalism, we are trying to do journalism, although in this case, it really is more commentary than than, than, than reported journalism as such. But you yeah. get Bernard's Kaka to get his reported journalism. Thank you. Uh, and um, yeah, no, we, we see ourselves uh, as um, reporters and journalists. And Bernard, you're breaking up again. You're, it's something to do with movement. So be careful. Ah, yes. OK. Um, I'll try and keep myself... Um, Still, still, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yes, and uh, that's what we expect the Reserve Bank to do, to put up interest rates, even though I don't think they should. And uh, it's quite possible between now and next Wednesday that things deteriorate on global markets because of this debt default concern and also because of the issues with Evergrande, which we haven't mm. spoken about this time around. Since we last spoke, they actually did default on a couple of um, bond payments to international investors. And I think the one of the outcomes was this very weak industrial production number out of China and um, growing concerns about uh, their slowdown. So we should keep an eye on yeah. that. One of the reasons... So just to, just to, you're, you're, so you're thinking the RBNZ will keep its, keep interest rates where they are right now because oh, there's no, too much doubt on the road. I think they will increase. I don't think they should increase. And I think, it, uh -huh. But I think if things worsen in the next four or five days before Wednesday... Then it's quite possible they could hold. So let's it. just let's just for the for the benefit of the people there, because I, I reckon sometimes you do need a bit of a reminder about these things. Um, October the eighteenth is what? That is the debt default day in America. Okay, critical day. Evergrande is this uh, Chinese property company with three hundred billion dollars in debt that we need to track. And I think what are we was what we were talking before that we think they're much more likely to default on foreign foreign owned debt than they are to Japan, Chinese owned debt. That's right. right. And, what, are, what, other, what are the other factors, Bernard? Well, Just to, that people should think about as they're scanning the papers and think about, yeah. as you said, over the next five days and yeah, a little um, bit beyond. I mean, there, there is an energy crisis in Europe. Hmm. So gas prices and electricity prices in Europe, as they go into the winter, are exploding because of a, a shortage of gas, the closure of these coal plants, often replaced hmm. by gas plants to, uh, to um, create electricity. And, of course, in Britain, they have the double problem of not enough truck drivers to ship fuel to all of these service stations. So this week... Um, oh, but it's got nothing to do with Brexit. No. <laughs> it's got everything to do. It's got everything to do with Brexit, as do the other, as do the other shortages. Because, I mean, it's, it was a very... Well, I mean, apart from the fact that, that uh, the UK told all of the uh, um, EU truck drivers and from places like Romania and, and uh, Poland to go home, the, the other problem is that if you are a truck driver from Łódź in Poland, it's no longer economic for you to go to, go to Lille via Leicester uh, and to drop something off there because you've got to fill out too many forms. It's, it's a pain in the ass and you don't know whether you're going to get out. So they, you know, they've kind of cut themselves off in a very deliberate way, but it's got a lot more to do. It, it's more complex than just 
shortages of drivers because there are shortages of, of all sorts of workers all over Europe. But uh, this is yet another example of how Brexit has really blown the toes off um, of uh, Britain's own Britain's own foot. He says yeah. to stretch another metaphor. Yes. I mean, you've got lots of um, friends and and family and colleagues uh, in Britain. Uh, is there any sense that the Brits are finally coming to their senses and deciding? No, 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 no. no. It's way too late for that. Uh, there is a there is a strong sense. I, I read today from some um, uh, pro Brexiters that who I follow who drive me batty and have been driving me batty for about four years that. Um, this whole thing is being stirred up now by remain by people who were remainers who are trying to just expose what a disaster it was rather than you know uh, joining together and trying to sort out the problem but uh, anyway so should should we talk about Boris uh, Berejiklian's resignation oh, yeah. I mean, it's, no, it's it's happened while we've been on air as it were wow. and i find it really instructive because she's been she's resigned over a corruption charge related to a secret lover that she had who is being investigated for corruption and the anti corruption authorities in australia announced it but 45 minutes ago that they're investigating her and she has almost immediately resigned scott morrison is saying what a terrific person she was but we don't really i mean of course she's she's innocent until proven guilty but we don't really have a history of this kind of corruption investigation in new zealand you just you you tend to get i mean new south wales in particular is certainly was when I worked there as a journalist an absolute hotbed of rat bags, <laughs> and you had the phenomenon of what they called colourful racing identities, <laughs> who would be hanging out with the judges and the politicians. Like there was a wonderful judge called Judge Murray Farquhar, who had a, uh, some v- rather nice paintings provided by colourful racing identities and various other things in his home. Uh, that was the era of Neville Rand, who um, you know kept barely a lid on the phenomenal corruption in the police and in politics, particularly Labour Party politics in New South Wales. So I, I think it's a very interesting moment to see Gladys Berejiklian uh, foist it out. Uh, and it really undermines Scott Morrison. Because one, one of the other things, Bernard, that, we, that I addressed in my spin-off thing this week was um, Paul Keating, um, you know, one of the one of the most highly regarded by, particularly by Paul Paul Keating, prime ministers uh, in Australian <laughs> history, uh, and a second Australian prime minister who also has an extremely high opinion of himself, Malcolm Turnbull, both attacked the um, uh, submarine deal, and uh, Keating was, you know, as in his normal florid fashion, absolutely fantastic about it, describing it as nuzzling into the sweaty armpit of the United States, and Keating is hardly a the Gough Whitlam figure, you know, he is he is a, uh, a right wing Labour politician in a sense who has, you know, defended that alliance with the United States over many years, uh, and of course bragged about having been very close to Henry Kissinger and so on, and how how well things have been done when he was Prime Minister. But it, it, he he really does identify that um, the submarine deal ties Australia to the to the umbilical cord and various other parts of the body of the United States to an extent that even Australians will be surprised by. Yeah, and it really means that um, the optionality that you want to retain as a Prime Minister to pivot and uh, weave when things change is gone. So now Absolutely. Um, Australia really... I mean, let's say, for example, something dumb happens and China decides it really wants, wants to invade Taiwan and the Americans have a fleet up there going through. Do you mean so, sometime in the next 40 years before the submarines get there? <laughs> so there's a fairly high chance it'll happen. Yeah, Exactly. What I suspect will go on is that the Americans will say to the Australians, hey, we can't give you your own submarines for 20 years, but we'd like you to pay for one of ours. 
Yeah, and we'll base it in Darwin. Yeah, and we'll run it. You, we, you just slap the sticker on the side, and we'll decide what we do with it. And that that will be an interesting problem because yeah. um, now Australia, and luckily for us in, in a lot of ways, ANZUS didn't turn into AUKUS with a Z, NZ mm. on it. And now we are... Uh, we're able to be more independent, I think, now that the Australians have really cast their lot in with America in particular. Yeah. And I think it's partly because of Britain. So Britain has done something um, dumb, which is Brexit. And uh, Boris is just scrambling around for anyone that he can pitch his connect his wagon to and of course the Americans mm. are the obvious um, special relationship uh, group off the off the off the rank and um, and the Australians were the other ones because um, apart from Europe and America it's Australia who are the some yeah and of course one of the points that or two of the points that Keating and I think Turnbull also made was that it is against Australian law for there to be any domestic uh, nuclear power industry. And normally when you have nuclear submarines, you need a nuclear uh, domestic power industry in order to extract the um, enriched uranium. So the, one of the points that they were making was that these, even if these uh, submarines are built in Adelaide, which I, near Adelaide, which I very, very much doubt, in Wyala I think they'd probably be built, uh, or the idea is they will have to be towed or taken somehow <laughs> to the United States or the UK to have their nuclear power units fitted. And one of the things that um, uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull pointed out was that the French, although they were diesel electric submarines, um, they had been, they were designs that could also be powered by, by nuclear power, really? uh, by, by nuclear units. So one could, could, have, could have imagined swapping them out if that became necessary. Mm. It, both of them also made a very good point, which I hadn't really thought of in this context, which of course is that France is a Pacific power. You know, it has mm. what you might call colonies, or although of course they're not colonies because they're actually literally part of France, New Caledonia and Tahiti and so on. Um, it is a Pacific power. It has a stake here in a way that uh, arguably the United States does not, in a sense. That's right. Well, of I mean, it has there, are, there are two million French citizens learn. in the South Pacific. Mm. And anyone who's been to New Caledonia or... Um, or Tahiti knows the French. They're not just there in name; they're really there. Uh, and it's um, it's not that I'm a I'm a huge fan of the French foreign policy. Uh, I was it, the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior is still fresh in my mind. Mm. But um, the French, at least, are not going to try and you know invade invade Iraq or uh, Afghanistan. And well, certainly not, certainly not anymore. Anyway, no, put it that that's way. Right. Uh, and and unfortunately, Australia has really uh, thrown its lot in with America. And I think Keating is right when he sneers at uh, Scott Morrison. Now we know of him as Scomo, but in Australia, if you want to say something rude about Scott Morrison, you call him Scott from marketing. Mm. <laughs> and that's yeah. I mean, he does look like a character from The Office, of course. Yeah, and he actually. <laughs> is Scott from marketing because his job before he went into politics was the head of the Australian Tourism Promotion Authority. And mm. he was the guy who came up with, or was it? Where, where the bloody hell are you? Where the bloody hell are you? Yeah. Um, which um, eventually cost him his job because uh, he fell out with the board of um, Australia Tourism at the time. And the reason he got that job is because he did the same job in New Zealand. So Scott mm. Morrison was and didn't he, didn't he 
few possible problems in here that we haven't fully got to the bottom of? Or does this, am I being too exploratory here? Yeah, no, no, he certainly didn't leave with a lot of huge fans in mm. New Zealand. And he was the one behind the 100% pure branding. Mm. That's the, the irony of Scott Morrison. So he is a marketing you know, whiz, so to speak. And, mm. Mm. and I think rightly, there's a few people challenging his strategic nous, his um, temperament on a bunch of things, because he is, uh, um, uh, he's, he's not, I think, in the same category of a Keating or um, even a Hawke. No, definitely not. No, no, I think that's, I think that's, that's fair enough in there. And they, of course, who, I mean, Keating regards himself as only in, the, in a category of his own, and Malcolm has a fairly gigantic ego as well, yes. having become very, very wealthy as well. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting, very interesting set of problems, Bernard. What so, should we talk about now? So um, I wondered if we could uh, finish off with a um, a skateboarding dog story. So, Do you mean my the really horrible one, the yeah. one that I suggested about this poor bugger and uh, my skateboarding story, which is as that sounds awful, is a Texas man who was charged fifty four thousand dollars for COVID nineteen tests he had to take it in, in an emergency room. And apparently it's exactly what the price should have been for the care that he took. It was a PCR test and a rapid antigen test. And it just shows you the appalling risks of getting ill in the United States. It's $56,000 he was charged ultimately for a PCR test and an antigen test, which, you know, having lived in the United States until quite quite recently, relatively recently, uh, when you encounter the costs and burdens of the... Uh, health system it is rather a shock yeah and we forget how dominant that is a factor in in people's lives and their employment choices where they live how they think about things so if you if you're in america you you think about avoiding accidentally getting into a hospital if you get yourself sick and you don't have insurance and you make choices about which job you're going to have depending on which insurance is offered and um, and it, it creates, it just deepens the difference between the rich and the poor in a way that we don't really think about here. Yeah, we want to be really, really careful of going, going on that path, which is to some extent where the UK is potentially on the way where you have um, very, very strong lobbying from the United States to be allowed to, for private access into the health system. But did you have a slightly more encouraging skateboarding, skateboarding dog story? Um, I mean, a little bit less depressing. A little bit less depressing. Well, one thing I really yeah. enjoy doing in the dawn choruses uh, is putting at the bottom, and I always put them at the bottom so that after you've um, gone through the um, sometimes depressing and scary news of the day, there is something to um, uh, keep you uh, amused or at least think that there is hope in the world. And uh, one of the things I really enjoyed uh, putting into the Dawn Chorus this week was a bunch of stunning pictures of Auckland. Uh, uh, could you repeat that? You lost your, you lost your mic again. Uh, th- there was some fantastic pictures of Auckland um, at dawn and, and at dusk. And uh, I just recommend people go and have a look at those um, fantastic pictures. Where were they, Bernard? I popped them at the bottom. Oh, in the, in the car car. Oh, that's a promotion for the car car. Yes, yes. That was clever, no. wasn't it? All right. Well, let me give you, it's not really a skate, skateboarding dog story, but it's a promotion for my bulletin, my world bulletin and the spin-off. Um, 
Stephanie Grisham, Grisham, the uh, former press secretary uh, of Donald Trump, who distinguished herself by not having any press briefings at all in the year or so that she was there, made a fantastic, has a new book coming out, which sounds absolutely delicious. Uh, Trump discussed the size of his penis with her. He discussed the, uh, discussed the shape of the bottom of a young uh, woman staff member with her. Uh, he just sounded absolutely grotesque. But memorably, she describes Jared Kushner, the son-in-law, as Rasputin in a slim-fitting suit, <laughs> which I thought was quite oh, that's delicious. Be- that's beautiful. And also, you know, if you wanted to really throw an in insult to injury, you could say, and 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 also someone who probably can't grow the long Rasputin beard. He looks yes. like. Well, don't, let's let's not forget that Rasputin had to be killed. I think. I mean, the attempted killed. It took them uh, three goes to kill him. So I, I suspect. Um, Jared Kushner could rise from the dead quite well as well. Yes, unless he fell foul of Mr. Khashoggi. Uh, yes, and uh, from memory, they 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 were um, Khashoggi. Khashoggi. No, he was the guy who got murdered. The um, uh, MBS. MBS. That's right. And they've been. Yeah, let's, they've let's, been quite not, let's not go down that road. No. 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 Hey, the daily fun thing is great, says one of your fans over oh, there. Oh, that's fantastic! I really appreciate that, and I've I've been really thrilled to see the. Um, the feedback and the comments and uh, and the way that people have um, adopted the kakas and the, da- the dawn chorus every day. Um, it's been a, a real thrill over the last couple of weeks and I'm looking forward to many more weeks to come. And uh, more hoons to come. Peter, thank you again. It's wonderful. Thomas, to, thank you. To thank you, everybody, board. for being on that call. Yeah. Uh, we really appreciate it. And just, just Julia, where you talk about Jacinda's job at Hipkins, my, a, a relative of mine sent me a rather ridiculous and nasty list of the jobs and degrees that the government ministers have done. And I noticed that Aisha Verrill seems to have quite a few qualifications for the job that she does. And, and I think we need to remember that these are politicians. They're not chief executives. And you know, it may be good to have a few more chief executives in there, but these are political people. It's the civil servants beneath them who have the specialism. But I, I was quite struck at uh, having somebody like the, the, like Aisha Verrill, uh, which is not to defend necessarily having a whole bunch of um, PR people and former union people. But you know, these are, these are not the people necessarily doing the daily administration of their department. So I think that might be a bit of a furphy. Yeah. and As, um, as we say in Australia. That's right. Um, and my impression of pretty much everyone uh, in the current cabinet and even in the last um, National Party cabinet is that many of those people are incredibly hardworking, often very bright, um, and often, you know, are admirable in, in many ways and certainly have sacrificed a lot. Uh, in those positions, sometimes for all sorts of different reasons, but in most cases, I'd um, give many of those people the benefit of the doubt. And particularly when you get to that prime ministerial level, having seen uh, how it operates uh, day in, day out, um, uh, it is an utterly all-encompassing, exhausting job, and I wouldn't uh, begrudge um, anyone who had it. What about... What about what about human mannequin uh, David Seymour? Yeah, David's an interesting character as well. He's got he's got a certain um, uh, je ne sais quoi, yeah, no, so, or a marmite, you know. Yeah, what no, is he? he's got an authenticity about him, which which works, and and a sort of a a naive enthusiasm, which is endearing. Um, of course, I don't agree with many of his views, but you have got to admire his um, his 
grit and carrying on. Remember, he was there for six years yeah. with virtually no well, he's support. also got though, a, a glibness, which absolutely, is absolutely perfect for talkback radio. Yeah, and his you skills... Know, the, the, the state, putting out the statement this week about Britney uh, to somehow can weirdly and rather bizarrely connect the future of, of the ACT Party to Britney Spears' um, uh, direct, uh, guardianship was pretty bizarre. Oh, yeah. No, no. He has some political skills, as they say. And um, I sort of admire what he's achieved so far. Uh, I think part of the reason, though, he's been... Or there's so much apparent support for ACT at the moment is there is this... There is a, a bit of a vacuum developing in the middle of politics, I think. And at the moment, ACT is the one that's scooping it up. But I don't think it's mm. going to stick hard. I think there's there's going to be some more volatility. In is that is that what's going to do for just going to do for um, Judith Collins, do you think? Sorry, I've, I've gone from skateboarding dogs to Judith Collins, which is a yeah. real problem. I'm yeah. sorry about no, that. No, no, uh, I think Judith still has problems. Um, but the the attention has gone off her this week, and she's probably had one of the better weeks um, she's had as leader. And I think that the support for the Prime Minister has softened over the last year from those extremely high, unrealistically high levels of May last year. But um, And not just because of what's happening with COVID. I think the realisation of the failure on housing, on wealth tax and on um, welfare reform has um, damaged the enthusiasm of her biggest supporters in a way that means mm. that her, 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 her strong rock of a base is starting to erode a bit. And mm. whether it erodes fast enough for the next election, hard to tell, uh, and unlikely with Judith Collins there. But, but um, things are moving in, in the centre of politics, and there's a, a sense of... Um, of uh, shiftiness in terms of the support, which I haven't seen for some well, it's time. Well, it's going to require some excellent weekly podcasts to analyse oh, the absolutely. future of the centre of New Zealand politics. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Hey, everyone. All Fantastic right. to um, see you all. And Peter, another another cracking edition. And I look forward to next Friday at four o'clock. Thank you very much. See you, Bernard. Kakite anō.